Welcome to the Hospitality Maverick podcast with me, Michael Tinkser. We at Hospitality Mavericks are here to inspire leaders to create heart-centered and profitable businesses from the inside out, the kind that both employees and customers love and support. Thanks to BizSimply for sponsoring this episode as our show partner. And BizSimply is the all-in-one HR, workforce management, rotor operations software designed and built by hospitality experts to make every shift run like clockwork. And we join forces to help the industry to find new ways to become even more innovative in how we lead our people, how we operate, to how we grow our businesses, to how we serve our customers. Together, we want to share strategies and tools that can make the industry thrive long-term, not just survive. A simple idea shared together around a framework in a conversation enables people to innovate, to think differently, to kind of start to work into different spaces. And I think that's the way you're going to change change things, is that we have to have millions of those conversations going on all at once, where you kind of are seeing multiple experiments happening en masse, being rolled out, having that daily impact, starting to kind of stretch and, and innovate and evaluate. And I think food service is a unique space for doing that because it has that regular drumbeat. It's different to a restaurant. It's a, it's a kind of got a, a different kind of structure in it. And so you can kind of play with that. And so I think to me, food service can really play a key role in, in really driving some of those initiatives and taking those ideas. To say I'm excited about today's conversation is an understatement. It's something very close to my heart and purpose. How do we change the world by changing the way we eat? And to help me explore this, we have a leading expert and change maker with us today. Please meet Paul Newham, strategic innovator and executive leader working on the UN's Sustainable Development Goals, with a deep focus on making food systems better and fairer for everyone. He is the network lead at SD2 Advocacy Hub, the Chef Manifesto, and Beans is How. And you might already know that our food system is challenged, or you maybe felt that over the last couple of years as prices have fluctuated and also there hasn't been enough of what you normally would get. Globally, agriculture and land use are responsible for almost 60% of biodiversity loss and 30% of greenhouse gas emission. In parallel to this, you have the meat and dairy production that alone uses 83% of the world's agricultural land, while 8% of the world's greenhouse gases come from the food we waste. The vision for this conversation is to share with you the current state of the food systems we have, and how we in food service can play a vital role for making it better for people and the planet and explore some of the exciting innovations that is underway across our lovely food industry. Paul shares how he fell in love with food and saving the planet as well how he's working on some exciting projects with food service operators and chefs to find simple impact solutions on these complex challenges. We discuss some of the major contributors to climate change when it comes to food systems. We take a deep dive into the Chef Manifesto and how they engage with chefs and the culinary community to drive positive change when it comes to the food system. And Paul and I have a shared obsession for pulses. So yes, sorry, we will take you on a tour in the Pulse universe and touch on the great work they do with Beans is How. We discuss consumer behavior and how important it is to be aware of the demands and changes as you are developing more plant-rich choices for people to order out of home. 
And if you liked today's episode, it would mean the world to me if you could leave a review on the show. That can happen either on our website, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. The better the reviews, the better the guests, and ultimately, the better the learning is for you. This conversation, I'm quite sure, will make you reflect on your current food strategy and how you actually are utilizing the power plants in the right way when it comes to liver, on consumer demands, and the carbon agenda. Enjoy. Excited about today's conversation because I reached out to Paul a couple of times. I actually wanted to meet him in London, but our paths, they crossed within an hour or something like that because... Paul is a very important mission. He is trying to help us understand how we actually can be part of changing the food system. And the food system, as we will talk about this conversation, has a huge impact on the way we're going to live in the future. It's just going to be enough food, but also climate change and much, much more. And, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. So I'm very excited to, to have you on the show, Paul, to talk about what we can actually do in food service. To yeah, create a bit of right. super excited to be with you, Michael, and uh, really looking forward to today's conversation. So, so, so Paul, for, for a bit of context and a bit of background, how did you actually fell into love with, you know, principle changing the food system for the better for, for people, community and the planet? What is the background story? Yeah, look, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, when you think about food, we all have our own food story. And I think it's a unique thing about that connects us all is that every day we gather around a table, a bench, uh, a meal, a pot, a conversation around. And, and you, you, sometimes that's at your desk. Sometimes that's in a restaurant. Sometimes that's on the ground camping like the but food connects us all. And I grew up in a number of different parts of the world, had a family that traveled. And so we got to try different foods from all around mm. the world. So I'm originally from Australia, but we lived in, in Asia and in Africa and other parts of the world. And so I got to experience food in many different forms. And as I experienced food, I realized this connection of how we come together around food. And that kind of just got me excited in food. We cooked a lot at home and, and all of that, I suppose, kind of connected me into this kind of food space and food story. And it's really interesting. You talked about your travel and also like how you actually can get what I've seen often is how cultures can actually come together and unite around the pleasure of a meal in a yeah. way. And I think, I think it's fascinating actually, because, you know, I've got a friend who often will say to me when I say you know, I talk about food and talk about, you know, individuals. He often says to me, he goes, you know, there's, there's almost 8 million food experts in the world because every mm. single person is an expert in what they like, their own experience, their own space. And, and it, it's a good reminder for us when we're thinking about anything that we're creating, that everyone comes to that through a series of meals, through a series of cultures, through a series of religion, you know, all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds, all kinds of things, but they all have things they like for different reasons. And so, as you mentioned, when we come around food, we bring all of that culture, all of that experience, and that determines how we like it. And sometimes it's experiencing another culture. So it's like, maybe we can't travel as much. And so we experience different types of food. And that's a way of kind of understanding. Other times it's about how we we, 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 we travel and we associate 
you know, an amazing pasta with Italy or a Thai curry with, you know, Bangkok, or, you know, you have these, my, these images that kind of are conjured up when those smells and flavors come to you. And so I think, you know, food is this unique connector in that way. And it, it connects us all in different unique ways. And I think this is why food plays such a role in media. You see food on TV, you see, you know, uh, plates of food, kitchens as kind of coming together areas for, for so many different cultures around the world. And it's very interesting as, I, as we were talking about, I was also thinking about power of food, you know, to, in, in, you know, to start change or making something better. There's so much power in food because it actually starts a conversation as well as just a, an experience and senses, your whole senses systems starts going in. And one of the things it would be great to hear, Paul, because you made then food, you know, a big part of what you do now. This, you, you talk about food and you really talk about it in the context of making the world a better place and save humanity in principle. Can you talk a bit about like the transition you've done into the, the roles you're doing now at the, the UN, the Chef Manifesto, Beans is How, and the work yep. you're doing there? Yeah, no, absolutely. So Michael, you know, when you start to look at food around the world, one of the things you do realize is that it's not uh, the same. Do you know what I mean? Everyone has different access, has different levels of ingredients, of diet, of all kinds of different elements. And so when we look at that, there's a kind of a, a connection between, I guess, inequality and also food and, and equity and these kinds of, but also diversity and everything else. And so when we think about that, we look at in the roles that I've been in, I've kind of moved through looking at initially starting in Australia, looking at some of the food system issues that we face globally and how as a country like Australia that has a lot of access to good food. How do we have a responsibility for others to have that good food? And so that, you know, was part of my early career. And then as I've continued, I've started to kind of engage in that conversation, understanding much more some of the complexity of our food system, the way food's created has a massive impact on our climate, right through to the health benefits of the food that we eat and what that does to population. And so as we've kind of looked at that, I've kind of got engaged in the sustainable development goals working with the UN there initially at World Food Program and then moving out to help coordinate some of the work across Sustainable Development Goal 2 in the, the food insecurity, nutrition, agriculture, biodiversity, space, climate adaptation. And so we bring together now all of those kinds of networks. And as we did that, we realized the role of chefs are so critical, the role of kind of campaigns around ingredients. And so a lot of what we do is really trying to move forward on policy fronts, but also on public engagement, how do you help people to understand things they can do, choices they can make that can also have a big impact on the way the world is and the way their own health is and the way we kind of move forward some of these big agendas. And then when I was preparing for, for this interview and before I reach out to you, I've like been reading a lot and what you talk about is also that the food system is a huge contributor to you know, climate change. Could you elaborate a bit for, for people out there? I think we all know like big picture, but like maybe elaborate a bit the consequences of our current way of uh, dealing with the food system and the, the, what actually means from a, a climate impact and maybe what are the big things we need to change within that? Yeah. No, and I think it, I think that's a really good question. I think, you know, when we talk about food system, often people talk about the food system's broken. 
but the food mm. system's created to deliver certain things. And there's lots mm. of food systems in our world. When we talk about food systems, we're talking about the process of getting food from the ground to your plate, from production to packaging, to supplying, selling and everything else. It's farm to fork to landfill. You know, it's all of those elements in the food system. So, you know, we need to think about it holistically. And I think this is key. I think, you know, when we think about at the moment, what some of the impacts are, so we, you know, climate change is accelerating a lot of the impacts at the moment. At the moment, a third of greenhouse gas emissions has been estimated to be responsible from the food system. So that is from the agriculture, that whole view. And at the same time, you know, we produce enough food now to feed one and a half times the planet, but a third of our food produced globally is either weight lost or wasted. And so, you know, food loss and waste is, is not necessarily a major contributor to global emission, but it is a big impact. And so you've got lots of people eating, you know, not enough food or eating the wrong types of food. And how do you kind of bring that in? And at the moment, you know, we're seeing with the change in weather patterns, falling crop yields in some of the world's most food insecure places, and this is pushing more people into poverty. And that then forces migration. It forces people to go looking for other solutions. It means that their nutrition levels are not at the right level. And so this is really a challenge. Water is another big challenge, water constrained. And so, you know, this is going to have massive impacts on climate on agricultural production and also these kinds of things like floods and extreme weather, you know, events are going to really make a big challenge. So how we think about it, our food system is really critical for us to understand some of the impacts that are happening. And, you know, if you're, I was just in Europe a bit earlier to this year and everyone was complaining about the heat, you know, mm. in other parts of the world, people are complaining about floods in other parts, they're yeah. complaining about it being too, too, too warm, you know, and you're getting these kinds of changes going on, which is really hard to plan for. Yeah. And I guess we haven't seen all the consequences yet of the disruption that actually happened with the pandemic started to, we now have all these weather events or climate events as well. And I guess you were seeing really interesting that everybody, I'm based in the UK and everybody actually believed that the, the index for food costs would go down, but actually because of these events, it stays up at plus 20 in the food service context. And, and that actually lead me to the next thing, because yes, that's some really big problems and you're really, you know, you are courageous. You're trying to solve these big problems. When it goes to food service and I'm thinking as a, an operator, what is the role of food service? In this, like, what what role can we play in actually, you know, participating in improving these challenges you're mentioning here? Yeah, I mean, look, as you would know, I mean, food service feeds a lot of people around the world. You know, the size of the global food service market, you know, in 2021 was about 2.5 trillion. It's forecast to grow to about 4.45 trillion dollars in 2028. You know, it employs, just if you look at the U.S., there's over almost 11 and a half million people employed in this. And so you've got massive industry space and people don't really realize this. This is food service works in universities, in schools, in prisons, in companies, in so many different spaces. And so it's really key. I think, you know, one of the things is food service is often controlled by the organizations that are in charge of that space. So if it's a government facility, the government, if it's a business, the business. And so I think food service is in a unique space because 
there's a lot of chance to shape that. It's to shape that through, you know, the company's agenda, through the government or the, the, the organization's kind of commitment. The eaters often are also there regularly. So if it's a school, you know, they're there five days a week. If it's a workplace, it's five days a week, maybe a little bit less since COVID, you know, if it's a, a prison, everyone's there every day, you know, like, so you've got the eaters there all very regularly. And so I think there's opportunity to really have an impact. And I also think there's a connection between how you can kind of think about connecting some of the growing demand of, of consumers to these sustainable practices. And, and I think food service allows you to test and learn a lot. And I've seen a lot of this in some of the universities and some of the business cafes. I've seen amazing innovation happen around how do you cut down food waste, looking at the kitchen side, but also at the, the eater end, you know, how do you kind of change behaviors through the way that you model things? How do you think about shifting diversity of diets to, you know, towards more plant-based foods to more diversity of ingredients? How do you introduce foods? How do you bring in more seasonal ingredients and more biodiversity on the plate? And how do you kind of drive that kind of behavior change as well? And I think there's lots of opportunities to do that in food service. So for me, the size is really key, but it's also the, the, the approach, the ability to be able to connect with people in the way that food service does. And I guess also that is the ability to actually communicate them about what their food choices mean in the end of the day as well, without actually judging them, but actually just giving them better solutions. I think one yeah. of the things I've seen in food service as well around, you know, lots of people talk about the plant-based thing, but actually, I don't know what you believe, but what is actually going to drive this change? Is it taste? Is it quality of the food we're changing? Is it the cost? What, what is actually your learning when you, you talk with all these, you know, people around the globe? What is it that's going to make consumers make more planet-friendly food choices. Yeah, look, I mean, I always go back to kind of the basics on this. I think the majority of people make choices based around three things, cost, convenience, and taste. And so depending mm. on their food service, where the cost is an issue, some food service you, you're paying for, you know, you might buying the meal, others it's provided for you, you know, so you don't have cost gets cut out. Convenience is key. Um, if you're working in an office space, you need to keep working at your desk. It depends where you're eating. How are you eating? What's the culture? What, and then taste and taste is, is really critical. People think a lot about that. I think sustainability and many of these things come after, but they're increasing, they're increasing their prominence in decision-making people are staying and it depends on countries, depends on spaces and depends on the kind of food service, but there is a lot more building around that. But yeah, I'd say cost, convenience, and taste really often is the key thing that the, the core things that people make food choices around. It's like, can I afford it? Is it convenient? Does it taste good? And if they can kind of tick two out of those three, they're usually pretty much there. Cause sometimes they'll buy something that's convenient and tasty that costs a lot, you know, like, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a, a bit of a sliding scale in my view. Yeah, and I think you're spot on there. And actually, I normally, in the, I'm also involved in trying to get people to eat more beans and plants. And actually, the whole idea is it has to be taste that drives it to get actually the attention. Because if you start with that, a barrier that is taste and it doesn't taste good, that, and you know, engagement and transformation 
just not going to happen because there is a perception that plant-based food is poor of taste and not very delicious. So I think that that's one of the things we, as food service operators and chefs, really have to work with. What what, what is when we talk about you know let's talk a bit about when we talk about food service let's talk about chefs because you run this chefs manifesto and, and an incredible engaging group of chefs that's actually trying to change what goes on the plate to actually be part of you know, changing people's diets, but also educate people about how you actually can make tasty meals. That's actually really inspiring. And I, I want to go and eat that more often. Yeah, no. So we created the Chef's Manifesto as with chefs from around the world to kind of create a thematic framework to outline how chefs can contribute to the sustainable development goals in practical ways. And so we basically looked at the 17 sustainable development goals and then broke them down into the way chefs can actually engage. And we came up with these eight thematic areas, which chefs are able to, and the most passionate about tackling. And so it's inside of those eight thematic areas, we've then created a framework of simple practical action that chefs can take ranging from protecting biodiversity to supporting livelihoods, to ensuring access and accessible, affordable food that's nutritious. So lots of different things there. So, I mean, the areas cover off, you know, how ingredients are grown to biodiversity, to valuing natural resources and reducing waste, to celebrating local and seasonal food and focusing on plant-based ingredients, the education to, as I mentioned, nutrition. So we see that chefs have this amazing role to play, but it's about how sometimes connecting things they're already doing into this global mm. framework which enables them to then have a, a way to plug things together. And we've found that as chefs have started to do that, it's amazing how they can start to also think about, oh, I could do that as well. I could do that as well. If I'm thinking about this, where do, where do I source from? Or how do I think about this? Where, what other ingredients could I substitute? Where is the climate impact? And so people go on a journey and we've been running this for over five years. And it's really fascinating when you talk to chefs about kind of where they were five years ago and where they are now and how really? they're kind of really opening that up. Particularly, I've got a number of chefs in the food service space who are really thinking in much more sophisticated ways about all of the elements of impact that they possibly can have and really starting to lean into that behavior change conversation as well of how do they kind of help their, their, their clients and their customers come along with them in this journey that they're, you know, often out in front on. Yeah, because there's also, I guess, even if the chefs want to serve more plant-rich food, they still have to get that barrier down by the end user, the customer. You know, it's a, it's convenient, it tastes good, and it's reasonable fair cost. If it's not super convenient, then I might be willing, as you say, to, to pay more. What what have your learnings been around that working with the chefs? Because these are the people that is in the front line. They're actually trying to implement these big principles and thinking about how we create a better food system. Is there like some key learnings you, you could share of working with the chefs? Yeah, I mean, I think I think chefs often are not brought to the table on the conversation. So they're often executing you know, procurement mm. does this, does this. There's like all these groups saying, you've got to cut costs, you've got to deliver, you've got to make it tasty. And they're like, ah, what, what can I actually do? So what we've done is in this network, help to try and package some of the statistics, the information, the reports, the detail, the data, and then also bring together experts that they can engage with. 
so they can hear, they can discuss, they can debate in a safe environment with other chefs. That also creates perspective and it gives them ability to go, oh, you're doing that over there. I should think about what we do here. So an example is we, we recently, it's International Year of Millets at the moment this year. And so a lot of people are kind of looking at how do you raise the profile of millets, 70 countries around the world all signed on to this new initiative and millets use like a fifth of the water of rice to grow. So they're very effective, high nutrient levels, but most people, you know, particularly in the UK, most people don't have millets in their diet. They don't really, you know, maybe a bit of amaranth is there at the edge now, you know, a little bit of sorghum, you know, so there's, but we started talking about it. Food service groups that were there were like, how do we think about millets? What are we doing? Are we doing any testing? Could we implement them here? Could we trade them? Could we put them into like the porridge? Could we do this? What does that do? Does it increase cost? Does it increase nutrition? Does it give us less water? You know, so just these simple kind of sometimes just like a simple idea shared together around a framework in a conversation enables people to innovate, to think differently, to kind of start to work into different spaces. And I think that's the way you're going to change, change things is that we have to have millions of those conversations going on all at once, where you kind of are seeing multiple experiments happening on mass, being rolled out, having that daily impact, starting to kind of stretch and, and innovate and evaluate. And I think food service is a unique space for doing that because it has that regular drumbeat. It's different to a restaurant. It's a, it's a kind of got a, a different kind of structure in it. And so you can kind of play with that. And so I think to me, food service can really play a key role in, in really driving some of those initiatives and taking those ideas. And, and then it's super interesting when, when you talk about, you know, what food service can do, because earlier this year I had Reading University, I had Matt Tippett on the, the show and he is a very big, they are a very big fan of menus of change program, which also taps into many of the things you talk about. And then he said, like, what was really interesting, if you want to get changed by the end users, also the, the, the power of language. So they had a brownie they before called a vegan brownie. They had changed that into now just the thing they called it indulging chocolate, organic chocolate brownie. And actually, you know, people, they actually sold more brownies when they changed the name from vegan to this indulging organic chocolate brownie. And it's really, really interesting about doing these notching tests out with the customers. Actually, you maybe already have product that's really good and to take up consumption that you maybe just need to tweak things and actually look at how exactly notching people to try them out. Yeah. Just call it the salad bar. It's probably not going to be even more than it did before. So it's about how do you actually engage that from a communication point of view, but also from a taste point of view In, in the end, it has to be tasty, of course. It was really, really interesting how they have actually changed the whole consumption of things yeah. and how they actually have really looked at all menu items, as you said, how they actually put it together and how do they actually source things that people maybe not would eat and they maybe don't mention they put, for example, pulses and things. They're just in there and then people eat them and then they find out later that was actually okay. There was no taste penalty. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, there's, a chef, there's a chef that is a good friend of ours that, runs a food service company in the UK and in Ireland. And uh, he's done a brownie that involves black beans and mm. coffee grinds, but co- used coffee grinds. So he's very big on zero waste. So he was like, I've got all this coffee grinds. What do I do with it? He was using it to marinate things. And then he said, I, he's made this brownie, which is like made with beans, 
higher nutrition, adds coffee grinds that are a waste product as well. And it's like the best seller and it goes crazy, you know, but it's like using your imagination, I think is really key. And I think it's, it's understanding the science, understanding, for example, this is something we need to shift to having that confidence. And then it's about thinking, how do we sell that? How do we create that? And, you know, there is a big fascination with transforming ingredients, you know, like if you take this and you turn it into this, people love that, you know, and I think chefs are masters at this. And so I think there's a huge opportunity there to change that, but I think we've got to be a bit more creative in our language. And I agree menus for change is a brilliant program for doing that. But it's like a lot of information and testing on how do you frame this up? What do you say? Like, if you say it's a bean salad, people are going to go straight back to a memory of what the last bad bean salad they had. And then they might not choose that. Whereas if you say, here's a summer seasonal salad with citrus and something or other, and it happens to have beans, it's a very different sounding, you know, thing. So there's a lot that you can play with language. I think it's also using those language nudges to move people towards things that are not only nutritionally better for you, but also better for the climate. And also you can look at water and all these other angles as well. Yeah. And I think you're interested. You talk about creativity and coming back to what my tip had talked about is an incredible journey the university of Reading has been on and changing their food program. It's also that actually, you know, you, you, you actually get the whole organization willing to experiment and you actually reward that experimentation. And, you know, it's maybe there's also a bit of rigor that needs to go out of controlling everything that the chef does, because then you kill the creativity they actually have. And that's why often many people like to be chef. It's that last piece of the presenting the experience they can really create with their own touch on. So that's really an interesting piece of like, you know, the, 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 the need for control costs and processes and consistency, but also giving the chefs the, the ability to, to get involved. And actually if you're involved, you're often more willing to, to actually deliver what everybody wants in the end. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that participation, I mean, what the, with the chefs manifesto, we created a frame for a conversation across many spaces that chefs can have. And so it's about things that make sense to chefs that chefs can talk about. And that I think is really key as well. I think language is so, so important in this. Yeah. And, and, and then also I would like to dive into, because I am obsessed with beans and pulses like yourself and beans is how is an incredible, you know, banner organization trying to showcase how beans actually can be a very important part of changing the food system. Can you talk a bit about the, the, the work you do there and, and the importance, and we already talked a bit on pulses, but actually why is this like such a key protein to look at in the future and especially in menus? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, so beans is how is a campaign that has this highly ambitious goal to double the consumption of beans as well as peas and lentils. And we kind of looped them all in together, but around the world by 2028. And so we're wanting to try and make beans desirable, visible, and exciting, positioning them as this kind of climate smart food that can help us fix our future and mitigate some of our converging crises. So at the moment we have a real crisis on our health side, on the climate side, but we also have a cost of living crisis that's hitting Mm. everyone. And I'm sure in the food service. Everyone is, is, is really being hit by the ingredient costs going up, having to think differently about how you construct things. 
So we built a kind of open, inclusive campaign that we want to bring as many diverse actors together around to try and think about how do we drive forward this change and why pulses, you know, I mean, beans and, and pulses really in, reduce our in, the impact on climate change. So they have 90% fewer greenhouse gases than some animal proteins. They fix at atmospheric nitrogen into the soil. They improve soil and water quality and reduce the need for some of the synthetic fertilizers. They also can withstand harsh climates. So you see beans growing from high mountains to low valleys in using less water than other crops. They also have, from a nutrition perspective, often people talk about them as an alternate protein, but I, I really don't like that because I, I kind of almost say they're a more complete food. Beans mm. contain proteins, they contain carbohydrates, they contain a lot of fiber. Um, they have bioactives, vitamins and minerals for nutrition. And when you put them with other carbo like carbohydrates or whole grains, they provide all the essential amino acids. So, you know, beans on toast is a classic meal, but it's also one of the most complete meals. And, you know, yeah. if you've got a whole grain toast with it, beans cooked in the right way, it's amazing. So the other thing is, I think they also, because they can't cost on average, you know, a dollar per 500 grams or depending on where you are. They're, they're very affordable, whether you buy them in dry or canned. They have this long shelf life, so they also are a good pantry item. They don't, you can keep them in the pantry for a long time. You can keep them in the fridge for a long time, so that also impacts the food waste issues. But pulses are just very dynamic in that sense. So you get that nutrition, the climate change, but also this kind of cost impact. And so we're really trying to bring people together around beans in this campaign to get them to understand, to think about them, to consider them differently. And we've got a number of initiatives, including this beans on the menu challenge, which is kind of launched at the moment to really help people get beans on the menu. And it's really targeting chefs and food service to try and say, how do we think more about getting this kind of solution onto our menus? Yeah. So that's definitely a shout out out there. We will put the, uh, the link to, to that in the, in the show notes, because that's, that's a great way of actually trying to do creative solutions that might even give really, really good business sense as well. And I, and then one of the interesting things, because I'm been cooking pulses with my business partner for a very long time, what we learned as we were serving very progressive companies, that they wanted more climate-friendly food. And that was why we started cooking with bean because we read about that and I was like, okay, this is great. And then we found out all the. The, the, the exciting benefits of this as well, how yes. actually like from a health point of view, if you eat a handful of beans every day, what that does for you as well, it, egoistically, it actually gives you longevity, maybe potentially up to four years more, some science says. But really interesting was there's also that people was very scared of not feeling full and satisfied and actually beans actually give you more satisfaction in your body because also it's not as hard on your, your tummy in the end, it's your digestion system. It's much more as you convert to it. I know people say they will give you a laxative in the beginning. They will because you it starts suddenly you start a high intake of fiber. But when people get over that barrier, they really find out how they give them energy to live the life they want to do. And the satisfaction of that is really huge. And many people that has even in big meat eaters, what I learned as well was also that they actually didn't feel they were losing out on meat. They was actually feeling that's actually you know, I feel satisfied actually because yeah. I feel full and I feel ready to go. If I wanted to go to the gym, I feel ready for that more ready probably than I was if I eat a lot of chicken. 
and thereby not saying that meat doesn't play a role in, in cultural cooking. It really does. And we have to respect that. Um, and what is you see, you know, because again, we talk, what I'm coming a bit to as well is like, there's definitely challenges getting people to consume pulses. How do you see that, you know, if food service think that this is great, solve the protein problem, it's natural, I want to do that. But then they start thinking there's all these, you know, barriers and negative thoughts connected with consuming pulses. You talked about, you know, a bean salad before, which is a great example. Yeah. No, I mean, there, there is a lot of myths about beans and it's been fascinating. We, as part of the Beans is How campaign, have just gone through developing our theory of change and, and really done a whole literature review, a lot of work looking at where, where, what, 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 what does the literature say about beans? What does, what are the facts? What are the fiction and everything in between? And we've got a science innovation advisory group advising us on this of some of the top experts around the world. And it's amazing when you start to dig into it. So like you mentioned fiber, you know, a lot of the reason why gas occurs is because our bodies don't have enough fiber in our diet and all of a sudden you inject it and then it, the body reacts. But when you think about fermentation in your kitchen, what happens? What do you get excited about when you see bubbles? Well, it's mm. the same as if you introduce a prebiotic, it's, it's, it's not a, it's not a probiotic. It's a pre it feeds your microbiome, which bubbles. So you get bubbles. And we should be celebrating those bubbles coming out, not fearing those bubbles. You know, it's a, it's, it's a kind of mindset issue, but they also neutralize usually after you increase those beans in your diet. So there's a lot of this that we don't even understand and that there's a lot of mythology around that's kind of prohibits people from eating it. I've heard so many of these myths. You talk to people and they say, oh, really impacts, I can't eat beans because of my gout. And you're like, well, let's dig into that. And then you kind of go, actually, there's no correlation on the science side. So there's like lots of this information that is misinformation in food. And I think part of our job is to help people understand that. And so we're going to be looking at running a bit of a MythBuster campaign on the, on as part of the beans is how, but I also think the reason why people choose food is because of how it appears, as you mentioned. Yeah. And I think it, this is the job where chefs can come in to really reposition beans in a very different way. And there's a lot of people which are now starting to kind of reposition beans in this kind of very, very different way. Get the flavors right, get the profile right, change the, the form even. You know, you can, you know, a friend of mine, he says, whenever I put beans in a salad, everyone eats around the beans. Whenever I put a bean dip out, everyone scrapes the bowl. There's something about form and function as well. And it's about how as chefs do you learn from that and think about that? You've got to help people get to a point where they can then appreciate and they go, what's in that? Oh, I really like that. Oh, I should try that. And I think this is like cooking techniques. You know, if you put the salt in at the wrong time, you get a hard, you know, the beans. Un you know, there's so many elements here from a, from a chefing perspective that need to get right to also be able to provide and put a great dish on the table. But when you get a great dish that includes those beans, they, you fall in love with them. And I think this is part of the education process and how we kind of market and, and, and make beans a little more sexy. Yeah. And uh, super interesting when you talk about, you know, how you make them sexy as well, because also we already have them, as you talked about earlier, they already been part of our culture and ancestors culture, but always been cooking with them too. We created the new food system after the second world war. And it's actually yeah. interesting when people 
I've served bean for as well, try local beans like Carlin Fox beans in, in the UK, or it could be many others. Actually, there's lots of great beans. There's not just kidney beans, chickpeas, black beans. There's lots of great beans. There's like full of local stuff. And actually, you know, if you want to eat local, it's a great way to support local farming as well. And I think I've seen even in the country originally from Denmark, there's a chef called Klaus Meyer that's now going into the production of pulses in, in a place of the country where maybe also from a commercial point of view was not that many opportunity, but that's a huge opportunity creating, you know, a new way for farming on that piece of land because there's a lot of good soil as well. Yeah, what no, is absolutely. That? And I mean, I think people are looking at, I mean, Denmark, I know, and a lot of the Nordic countries are starting to look at beans, one for nitrogen fixing, two for the protein shift, three yeah. for flavor and also the ability. Like, I mean, they're so diverse. There's so many different varieties, but they also are such a good connection into really reducing and balancing out your cost in your kitchen, balancing out the nutritional level, the climate levels. And so there's so many areas that you can kind of win on with beans. Yeah. And it's interesting as, you know, you know, we, 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 we were probably just opened the lid today and we probably need hours of conversation to fix the food saving system, but actually it's not so much about the what we talk about is the action that we, everybody goes and do afterwards and actually start, you know, educating ourselves and putting that into action because it's really important to put it into action and actually start these, you know, small tryouts of different things in the menu yeah. or actually start communicating with the customer about it. Maybe actually doesn't, don't talk about beans, but actually talk about that you change this item on the menu or what do they think? And then you tell them as there's a, there's, there's beans in, but it's been so much going on. I think in, in the whole of the world is the complexity, the speed things goes in after the pandemic. But what have been some of your learnings for like the most, the, the most significant learning you had around the food system in, in the last two years? Yeah. I mean, my, like I've been involved in lots of different parts of the food system conversation. Like the, I was very active in the UN food system summit, leading the public engagement there. There was a lot of conversations around getting the science right, getting, you know, like understanding of what are we really trying to aim for? What's the target? I, I kind of feel like at the moment food becomes, when food becomes too complicated and I think it's getting pretty complicated for people, they mm. don't know, do I eat eggs? I do I not eat eggs? Do I just eat the yolk? Like what should I be mm -hmm. eating? And people are really kind of anxious sometimes. Are they doing yeah. the right thing in their food? So I, I kind of feel we need, if we want to see real change, we need some simple ideas to gather people around mm -hmm. we need ideas that have clear, easy outcomes and clear steps for people to engage. And so I think beans is how is a great, I mean, that's part of why we launched this was that based on, you know, trying to kind of communicate, you need more diversity on your plate. Well, what does that mean? What do I eat? You know, like people ask you, they go to tell me, what do I do? I don't know what a millet is. I don't know what this is. I don't know what seaweed. I wouldn't know how to cook it, you know? And so you start to kind of go, okay, where can you start? We need somewhere people can start. And, and we found pulses and beans were amazing because no matter what part of the world you are in, there's some kind of local dish that uses them. They've been around for a long time. They're affordable, you know, all of the things I've mentioned already. And so for me, I think this learning about coming up with some simple ideas, I think we need five, six simple ideas, and that will probably help us change the food system in, in some of the biggest ways possible. 
So, so that's actually, you know, quite encouraging that it's not like, because when we talk about the food system and we discuss it, you read books, I do myself, it often becomes this, you know, as you say, you almost become anxious because it's, it feels so complicated, right? Actually, what we need to do is actually find the six solution. There's a, but also the, the strategies Richard Koch talks about, like the 20% that gives 80%. What are the 20% that are really going to transform? 80% of the system, and then the rest will follow in a way. What is the big dominoes we need to hit? What, what are you personally excited about yourself when it comes to the food system right now? You know, because we, we talked a bit of doom and gloom, of course, but also what is there like something that makes you really excited and you're really optimistic about the, the future? Yeah, I mean, I see there is a lot more focus on the food system. So I think there's a huge amount of innovation happening. There's a lot of change going on, even with some of these simple solutions. So it's complex and also simple, like it's complex and also moving in the right direction. I think we, you know, I'm excited that we can see, I can see solutions that we can actually go and implement and I can see people starting to accept them and join them. Um, mm. Are we moving fast enough? No. Do we need to keep the, the pressure on? Absolutely. But I also think, you know, we saw a group join at this Beans is How Coalition Menu Challenge, a food service group. They, they rolled it out across a thousand sites in the US. They just did it all off their own steam, ended up generating a hundred new recipes, getting all their chefs excited, engaged. And that impact went, you know, across a thousand sites. And it was a very simple solution, but I get excited by that kind of thing. I kind of go... You know, that's the kind of stuff that then starts to have real impact when you start to scale. Could you by any chance mention who they are? If people think that's really inspiring, I want to go and look at the work they do. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the group that did it, they, it was Bon Appetit and they did it over Earth Day. Yeah. So if you go to their website, you can have a look, but also in the, in the US, ISS Gook and I have been very involved and they're rolling it out in a different way. But just the way that both those groups have just taken on the concept and then just run with it and they've yeah. rolled it out. They've taken their kind of idea, they've, they've engaged their chefs in exciting ways, and then they've just rolled it out across a number of their sites. It just shows you the potential for really that kind of broad engagement. Yeah. And I guess also if you think about the sites that's connected to thousands of people, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And in, in when we talk that scale, and that's where really, really change can happen really, really quick. Yeah. Um, what is your top advice to leaders out there that's trying to build a business as a force for good? Because that's the whole sentiment with this podcast. What is your one advice to them? Look, I think there's things that you could easily do. And I think what you need to do is think on multiple dimensions. So I think there's lots of things to do, but don't think one dimensionally. Don't get fixated on one idea and then you know, so just go, oh, it's just food waste or it's just this. You need to look for solutions which deliver on multiple fronts. Hmm. That's super, that's super interesting. So actually it's about thinking about, you know, food waste, but also how you actually increase the amount of plant-based, how you get people to eat them, I guess as well. That's another layer because well, it's, it's one thing is to make the menu. Another thing is to get them to eat it. Yeah, I think what often happens is people get really hooked on an idea and then that idea becomes mm. their kind of lightning rod. But what they've got to do is make sure that that idea has a holistic view around it. You know, yeah. so like people can go to like plant-based alternatives that help the climate, but then they're actually bad for your health. Yeah. So, you know, or they're, they're very wasteful or they're, 
use a lot of water. So you've got to think holistically. And I think the yeah. sustainable development goals provide a framework for that to kind of think about the 17 goals, but then think about the solution you're bringing and think, does that solution answer some more, more issues than, than less? And I think it's super interesting again, because you need to take the time out to think these dimensions, but also as an organization, then find out what's right for you and not looking what others do, because I have this conversation, but it doesn't matter what they do because that maybe doesn't fit you. You need maybe to find your own angle. There's so many ways you can skin this and actually make impact. There's not one way to do it and get obsessed about like food waste is a very great example. I think where lots of people spend a lot of energy on that, but they haven't thought about the whole chain yeah. of other things it, it brings as they go down it. What is the one question, Paul, you wished I've asked you, which I didn't, and what would the question be and what would you answer? Well, often I like hearing about what my favorite, my favorite food is. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> that's a good one. And what is your favorite food then? <laughs> So I'm a massive fan of pizza, which is a, which is a, an odd one for somebody working on a lot of beans. I haven't worked out how to bring beans and pizza together. I have blended some pulse flour into my pizza dough and you can get it at about the 30% mark and it still rises at the same kind of level without getting too sticky. But I, I, I have the pizza oven and part of this conversation we started with this morning that at the beginning of this co podcast was you know, about why and how you get into food and, and why I love pizza is because pizza is this ultimate kind of yeah. unifier. Everyone has pizzas. Everyone loves pizza in different ways. But for us as in my family, I love gathering. We have a kind of Sunday night, family night. We all make pizza together. We do a mm. sourdough. We have a pizza oven and it's this whole like kind of industry, which occurs and everyone gets to make their own pizza with their own ingredients on it in their own way. And you have everything from just like cheese to very intense flavors to, and, and I, I just love that way that pizza kind of brings everyone together in that kind of unique way. And so that's, that's part of, part of food culture and how it goes beyond. But I love, I love, I love the way pizza can kind of connect people. Uh, it's quite funny, Paul. That's, what, that's my number one favorite food as well. I've actually tried with a bit of a, like some different kind of version of hummus spread to put on pizza, but I haven't really found the thing that's like really super tasty yet because there, there's some just, but I'm also working on that. What is that yeah. kind of thing you can connect with pulses and on a pizza? I'll, I'll, I'll hand it over to my let's, pizza let's friend. On it. I will hand let's that idea out to some of my pizza friends in there. Uh, in food service, I'm meeting some of them the next week here. So I think that's a good challenge for, for the pizza operators to yeah, figure yeah. out how they uh, integrate ultimate. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think there's something in the flour, but I, I definitely think there's also probably something in terms of the topping that you could kind yeah. of bring in in some sort of way. There's probably some culture in, you know, some part of Italy that has, yeah, that somehow does it as well. I, 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 I'm not, yeah. I, I need to kind of dig into that as well. Oh, well, we'll, we'll, we'll connect over that question. That's a very good solution to actually get more beans on the menu and read to go. And actually, one of the things I actually forgot to ask when we talked about, you know, doubling the consumption, what are we talking about? Like, where, where are we now and what, where do we need to go just so we so get this that? Is one of the big challenges is that, you know, consumption has been, it's, it, so we measure production often. We don't measure consumption regularly mm. across. And so one of the things we've started to find is we've dug into the numbers and in some parts of the world, you can get numbers quite clear easily. Other parts, you get them grouped together. So it's like all vegetables yeah. are together or all grains. And then 
pulses get kind of tied in. So part of what we've got to do is a bit of advocacy around the measurement as well. So that you can then work out, you can, you can tell the trade numbers, the kind of growth numbers, and that gives you a bit of an indication, but some of that is, goes off into animal feed. It goes off into other areas. So this is a kind of area that we're spending a bit of thoughtfulness as well, Michael, around is how do we actually measure that? Where we can measure that, and this is where like food service is great because measurement is done at a very high level because of yeah. tools and systems, is we can definitely measure, and some of the groups I mentioned earlier are already putting in measurement plans to show how they're going to double consumption. And so I think this is something that we're really mm. willing to look at. And I think food service can use some of the tools, some of the controls it has to really help highlight some of that as we go forward. But today, even earlier today, I was talking to somebody who's running a massive school meal program in, in Kenya, and they were talking about how they, the ratios and how they kind of get mm. beans on the menu in their schools, but how they can increase that. What does that look like? Supply, you know, it, it, so it starts to open up a really fascinating conversation as well. Yeah, because that was one thing I was been pondering out and then I just wanted to come back to it because there's probably many thinking, what does it mean to double actually? And I think actually, exactly. You're also creating measurement systems within your organization. That's also what I've seen with contract caterers in the UK are really trying to find out. They talk about the amount of grams they put on or kilos they yeah. put on the, uh, the table every day. Where can people find out more about the incredible work you're involved in and the different organization? Where should they go? Yeah. So I think if you, you can check me out on Instagram, you know, X, I think we're calling it now and, 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 and everything else that Paul, you know, you can look up beans is how and follow us on Instagram. Chef's Manifesto is there as well. We can put that in, hopefully Michael somewhere in the notes for this, but it will do that. Uh, yeah. Check us out on there or LinkedIn as well. So we're across all the platforms and, and, and sharing a lot of information about this space, lots of conversations around these topics and and some of the latest sides so check us out and if you are interested in getting involved in beans on the menu please do if you want to talk to us about the chef's manifesto we'd love to talk as well great thank you so much paul and lots of pulse power to you and the team on the the journey ahead of transforming our food system thank you so much michael i really appreciate that you're listening in. so if you enjoyed today's conversation please share with others rate or give a review or subscribe to one of our channels, which all can be done via the website hospitalitymavericks.com. I believe that reading the right books is key to become a better leader. So I've helped you with a curated list of some of the best books to improve yourself, others, and the organization. Find them on hospitalitymavericks.com. A big thank you to BizSimply for supporting us, bringing great insights, strategies, and tools to help leaders to become better every day. Check them out at bizsimply.com or on their socials at bizsimply or bizsimplyhq. You can also email them directly at podcast at bizsimply.com. Thank you to Fina Charlson, who is the show producer from the podcast Collective. If you have any ideas and feedback for the show or other thoughts, reach out to me via LinkedIn or via my email, michael at hospitalitymavericks.com. I'm Michael Tinkser, and you've been listening to the Hospitality Maverick podcast show. Be Maverick!